Welcome to Coaching Culture, the podcast where we discuss how we can use sports and not let them use us. I'm J.P. Nervin, the founder of Thrive On Challenge, and the mission for this podcast is to connect leaders in athletics to help us create a transformational culture by building leadership and character. Now let's get started. You're listening to episode 69, Player-Centered Coaching with BCU's rugby coach, Nick Hill. This is the second part of our conversation with Coach Hill. Nick, this player-centered approach is something we've talked about a little bit, you know, before this, and you shared with me, and I thought some of the stuff that you did when you initially came into VCU was really fascinating. You were asking a lot of questions. What was your kind of process and your system for asking questions and developing the relationships with the players? Um, so, like, so you could do, like you said, start to gauge and understand them before you went in there and made changes. Yeah, I did a, did a couple of things. I did a kind of a one-on-one conversation with the guys, you know, just in, you know, the, the library Starbucks, um, like half an hour chat of rather than getting, but in essence, it's kind of like a player questionnaire type thing, but they weren't physically writing it. It was just a, a verbal conversation because that eye contact, that close connection, that interactive conversation, a bit like here now, you know, we're, we're, we're in, in this Skype aspect, we you know we're bouncing ideas off either each other. And then, so you get to know them as, you know, they're non-verbal cues as well and stuff. So, you know, one-on-one FaceTime together, I think is crucial, you know, lots of little conversations, interactions, and ask, like you say, asking questions, you know, why do you do this? Why do you do that? What do you want to achieve? What do you want to get better in? And so that, that was again, part of the process. Uh, the other thing is then actually get them to kind of write their feelings down because some people won't say exactly what they want to say to you maybe. So in a, so it's so I did those two. Th- in essence, it was the same thing. It was asking them questions, but one was a verbal interaction, and 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 one was a was a written response. Because again, it's, sometimes it's easier to express yourself on paper than face to face, and and vice versa. So um, then, just lots of interactions throughout the training sessions. You know, greeting them when they first arrive. You know, how are you doing today? You know, how's how did you Tesco? How was your class? Um, how's your family doing? Because, you know, sometimes, you know, some people have parents that are ill. So you just, you know, that human aspect, I guess. Explain the player-centered approach versus the coach-centered approach or the previous approach that you may have done or you see other coaches out there doing. If I was to kind of, if I was to define it in a, like a textbook, it, it starts with creating and developing a team culture, which empowers the players to take ownership of that culture um the next stage is in essence again because i deal with team sports it's using game-based coaching um and then the third aspect is you use questioning throughout your coaching to again get players to come up with the answers for themselves again empowering them to take ownership because a, a big part of it is you need to provide autonomy and choice with this philosophy if you don't, then you're not player-centered um, because you need to meet the needs of the athletes and players in front of you, which is making sure you have autonomy, they gain competence, they grow in confidence, uh, and, you know, and it's relatedness. So that it's related to why they're doing it, it's related to their sport and, and them getting better. So that's in a, in a nutshell, kind of in a, a definition of, of what it is. And it all starts with creating and developing that team culture, which is what you know, we're discussing today. You mentioned to me before that your 
you didn't have any or many assistant coaches at VCU, but you actually saw that as a positive when it came to developing the player-centered approach. Why did you see that as a positive? It gave me the opportunity to build relationships with all the players um, because it's important that a player is connected with their coach, that they feel that they're, they're wanted, that you know, in, you know, they're loved and, and cared for. So it was building that network with them so that they felt confident to express themselves and, and say what they want. Um, yeah, we, in essence, throughout the season, 56 guys trained on the training field. And we had anything up to 44 players at one time, all the way down to like 23. There was in that range, depending on, you know, circumstances of, you know, is it exam week? Is it, you know, is it course tour week? You know, they've got jobs, are they ill, injuries and things. But yeah, so that's another crucial principle to have here is a player leadership group um, that you work with. Again, it's, it's giving them empowerment to take ownership of their environment so you would ask them okay what do you want to work on this week so you have your coach ideas in the back of your head based on how they're performed on match day but they have doing the same experience they might see things differently and again if you don't understand what they're looking for and you just do what you have you're actually not player-centered and then they're thinking why am i coming here you know for example I think they need to work on tackling and they think they need to work on passing. So if I just do tackling practice, I actually haven't met their need. And they'll be like, well, I'm not getting any better at passing. Why are we doing tackling? Um, so finding out things from them means then you can integrate what you believe as coach, but more importantly, what they believe. At the end of the day, it's their team. You know, they're, they're playing the match. They're on the court across the white line. You know, there's not much you can do as a coach, really, once the ref blows his whistle and, you know, the tip-off starts, you know. You mentioned game-based coaching as an essential piece of the player-centered approach. Why is that important to a player-centered? I, I, I kind of see where it's going through, but I think many people would say, well, game-based coaching, that's more of a philosophy on training and teaching. How does it apply to player-centered? Again, it's, it's related to the actual game they're then going to go and play. So if you break it down into silos of technical and tactical just on their own, they're learning it isolated. They don't understand the connection between them all. Um, whereas in the game, they're working on all the things all the time. So the technical aspect, the tactical aspect, physical and psychological. So it's those four things. That's what they're going to do in a real game. So therefore, there's, from my perspective and experiences, there's better transfer then into a game. Um, they're making decisions in the moment. Um, so, and again, in game situations, not everything's perfect. You know, one of my key mentors, Brian Ashton, the former England rugby head coach, you know, his lessons from, you know, the, the, you know, the armed forces and the special boat services, you know, these battle plans don't survive the first contact in war zones, you know, and you could argue, a, you know, a core, a pitch is kind of that. Taking an analogy, it's messy, it's a war zone, anything can happen, anything can go wrong. You know, referee decisions, player loses concentration and things. So it's constantly adding all four areas all the time. Uh, and the key, again, with all this aspect, it's a process, it takes time. Um, but if you do it in isolation, when they then go into the game on, say, a Saturday morning or Saturday afternoon, they're kind of having to relearn things. So they're learning the game while they're actually playing the, the competition game. Um, whereas if you do it on a regular basis, like 
for example, my my perspective twice a week, Tuesday, Thursday, with a game on Saturday, it it slowly builds process in the long term. It's far more beneficial and realistic. Yeah, and I would say that when you're talking about the player-centered approach, it'd be the same as you give an example of like if your players wanted to be tackling in practice and you didn't let them tackle in, in training, um, that, that you wouldn't be kind of meeting the needs there. And I think regardless of our sport, most people play it because they want to play it, right? They want to compete, not because they want to drill it. And that was my experience when I went to Ireland as I came in there with this vision early on of, well, everybody loves basketball and basketball is a great sport. But I learned quickly that if I want to get my numbers up and really gain some interest in the sport, I needed to take that player-centered approach. And one of the key aspects of that was a game-based coaching, right? I'm not coming out there with a bunch of drills. And then there's all the other benefits that you just mentioned as well. Nick, tell us a little bit more about the questioning. That was the kind of the third thing you said when it came to a player-centered approach, um, using questions. Questions. This is something I'm big on. Definitely. It's the hardest part as a coach is kind of letting go your power. Um, ego is a big thing here with this, this aspect. If you're not used to doing the process of asking questions, it's definitely going to be a challenge. And the key is just try it, have a go. Um, I have a kind of a three three questions of what are we doing well, what are we not doing so well, and then how can you get better? What can you improve on? What are we going to work on? Um, and that's three stage process. You know, depending on the age of the the athletes and players in front of you, is either you know coach led, as in you facilitate this process through a guided discovery process, um, or if you're dealing with older players, you then for example, pick one of your players from your leadership group and you say, right, I want you to ask this, this and this. And then you just let them have their discussion. Um, so it's along a continuum depending, as I say, age and stage and the environment you're in. But it's, again, it's asking open-ended questions. You know, it's not kind of channeling them down to a set way, you know, and then it's okay to go off on tan- tangents and go where, the you know, the answers they're providing you. Yeah, we've talked about that in our episode around the after-action review, just kind of getting them to make the assessments there as well. And you've obviously talked about the importance of questions just to get things going as far as to when you kind of coming in and assessing the culture. Um, I think that's huge. Yeah, it's, you know, it's the the how, the where, the when questions, you know, that you facilitate and you grow within that discussion. And again, it's, I'll say no more than one to two minutes that I would do in the middle of a session. So they would play a game for five to seven minutes and then, you know, one to two minutes, you do these questions and then you back into the game and they can, again, they can see the transfer, the relatedness between all, you know, the whole concept altogether. One question just about building a rugby program in the United States. You know, I think one of the things is because it's a little bit more of a, I don't know if a niche sport is the right way to describe it here, but obviously building enthusiasm for your game and being able to recruit guys and and not only, as you said, teaching them the game, but teaching them to love the game and to love the experience. You know, I think that that's sometimes we might look at that and say, well, that may be a need for rugby that maybe we don't have in other sports like basketball or football or hockey. But I think more and more and more, um, you know, when kids are are quitting sports in the United States, you know, 70 percent by the age of 13, a lot of it, the reasons become because it wasn't fun or there wasn't that level of enjoyment or there wasn't they never found and held on to that love and passion for the game. So. As you're sort of building into that um, at VCU, what are some ways that you really try to get guys uh, to embrace the game for the game itself 
um, so that they find that passion and want to stick with it. Definitely, it's like one of our, you know, one of our mantras is have fun. You know, that's why they're here. You know, even old, you know, they're older college players and stuff, and they just want to have fun. So it's it's kind of finding the right characters within the environment that become part of your leadership leadership group. And Damien Hughes talks about cultural architects. You know, it's finding that person that's you know has those social social skills. You know, he the light guy, the the good characteristics. You know, and just overall a great guy that can add enthusiasm just as a personality. I think that's a part of this this kind of jigsaw. The other one we've already talked about is providing that game-based aspect because then it drives to competition. You know, so whatever scoring system you want to put into your mini game. Um, again, if you're talking about, you know, s- selecting into a performance team, then it's like, I want to get that spot. I want that jersey. Um, so again, it, it all goes back to relating it to the actual game, making sure they feel competent and confident, and then they're having choice. Okay, I want to do this, and you just drip feed questions and get to know them. But yeah, it's it's having that right blend and that right mix. Um, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's providing an environment where they want to keep coming back for more. Like one of my big measures is how many guys come training every week. You know, and tracking, do things drop off or are they consistent or do they improve, you know? And then it's just encouraging and praising the right type of characteristics. For example, I uh, I introduced a hard work and effort in training jersey. So my hometown club is Northampton Saints here in England. And I took a, one of their match jerseys over that I got given as a present back in the day. And, you know, I give that every week. To, so you're rewarding the characteristics you're trying to grow and develop within your environment. So when you went to a player-centered approach, did you experience any resistance by the players, the other coaches, or even some of your administrators? Definitely in the early days in Chile. Um, I'll never forget the first time I, I got off the plane on the Monday. I, my first after-school practice was the Tuesday. It was soccer. 17, 18-year-old kids. It was the second 11. So the first 11 being coached by a pro, he set up the drills and stuff. He said, right, off you go. So I took these guys away and they played this drill that the guy set up for five, 10 minutes. And I said, stop, in you come. They didn't say a word. You know, 17, 18 year old young adults. And I said, what do you think? No one said a word for like two, three minutes. And I'm like, whoa. And I just come from a high school where I said, what do you think, guys? Off they go. They could talk for five, 10 minutes. Because they've been showing the process. So, like, as I say, you pick up things really fast. Um, and you just have to, okay. And again, like, you know, so, you know, like, for example, in Lynn Kidman's books, you talk about do it, drip feed it slowly. Um, so if you're not used to it, you just do a little bit of it. Um, but the hardest thing with the players, obviously, I, I'd kind of just go with it now. Um, it's kind of sink or swim to them, but then you support them behind the scenes. And you have conversations this is why we're doing it. But in an ideal world, you'd have time to explain, you know, what developing a culture is and what is game-based coaching with the actual players because then it will make sense to them. Because at the moment, it doesn't make sense because they've, they've always done drills or they've always just done full-on contact. Um, whereas I kind of go the opposite end. I don't really do any contact. That Saturday afternoon on a match day, you know, 
but we do conditioning training and wrestling and stuff like that to do that conditioning aspect but yeah so in the early days i didn't do any and the players weren't liking it so again i wasn't meeting their needs and again through speaking with the leadership group okay we'll com- basically we compromised um so yeah so it's a partnership really that's interesting when you because we did the same process i'm in my second year at my current school and we're probably I bet we're close to 90% game-based in our practices, you know, and just creating different contexts or whatever. And we didn't talk about it at all the first year. We just kept setting up these games. We're like, okay, here are the rules. Here's the boundaries. You know, we play, and we'd ask them a couple of questions afterwards. We don't do as much questioning as I'd like. But um, at the end of the year, when we did our exit interviews, one of the questions that I asked was, I kind of unpacked the philosophy a little bit, you know, about, like, obviously we play a lot of games in practice. And here, we've never really told you why. But this is kind of some of the stuff that we we think works, you know, for training and for whatever. And just what do you think? Like you've done it for a year now, whether you knew it or not. What do you think? You know, and everybody's like, oh, I like it. It was really fun. And we felt like we were doing stuff that was going to happen in games. You know, and so it was just uh, it was funny, though, that because <clears throat> we never just like you said, like we never talked about it until they'd done it for a year. And then we we got some feedback on it and kind of explained it to them individually. And that was yeah. fun. Because the again, the heart. The thing I found is the younger they are, kind of the less things you need to actually tell them or explain to them. They just they just do what you because again it's that teacher pupil relationship. They kind of do whatever you say, you know. Um, whereas as I say, when you go up the chain to moving in across to young adults and adults, they'll question you, they'll challenge you and stuff. And like, hmm, well, we do. We always do this, you know. That's the that's the kickback you get. And yeah, it's definitely tough as i say the younger kids like the eight-year-old kids had no idea what was going on you know they, they're, they're playing they're playing rugby they're tackling you know um the parents stood next to me thinking why well, we did they need to learn to tackle they need to learn a pass and this that and the <laughs> other and I, for example i didn't even teach them how to tackle you know they're eight years old and they just didn't do anything like it. It a bit naughty of me but when you live in a warm country you don't really need to do warm-up so you know it's, it's, <laughs> it's friday after school practice you know it's been 25 degrees all day i just played games for an hour you know no warm-up nothing and straight into full contact because again i asked them what do you want to do well i want to i want to kick the ball i want to tackle and i want to score tries so again i, I did the the q a with the, these young kids as well and it's if you start with what they need you can then over time evolve it to actually what they do need um i think that's a trick to play as well um I think it's interesting because sometimes you there is benefit of explaining why you're doing something different than what they've experienced before rather than just jumping into it. For instance, yeah. I'm a big proponent of not using conditioning as a punishment, like as a, as a consequence for not working hard. Yeah. If you ask kids, well, if you were the coach, what would you do if the team wasn't working hard? They'll probably say, run. Like if a guy has a bad attitude, what should be the consequence? Run. But when you explain, well, running's good for you, Right. And like you explain the philosophy behind, you know, participation and practice is a privilege. It's an opportunity to come out here and get better. If you're not going to work hard, why should you be allowed to practice? And you explain how just the lack, the loss of the opportunity, the privilege of practice itself is is a far more beneficial consequence to becoming like who we want to be as a team. Like the reality is you show up to practice because you want to get better. If you're not going to work hard, why should I have to run you? to do something that you should want to do, right? Like, so yeah. when you explain that, like this light bulb goes off in the kids' minds, 
Nick, before we go, because there's so much more that we could dive into, and, you know, you've touched on so many topics, but before we let you go today, is there something that we didn't talk about that you'd like to kind of bring up? The key is making sure you empower your players and athletes to take ownership of their environment. Because at the end of the day, it, it's their time. It, it's their journey that they're going on. You know, and as a coach, you're trying to provide the best possible environment for them to do that. And the key is making sure you have a shared purpose and a common agreed goal. It's not the coach saying, right, we want to do this and we want to do that and we want to achieve this. It's like, what do you think, players? So right from the get-go, it's open-ended questions. It's like, what do you want to achieve while you're here? So it makes sure that everyone's heading in the same direction, all singing from the same hymn sheet. Um, because if you're not and you don't provide choice, at some point in this journey, this process, it, it's going to come back to haunt you and you don't know when that point in the journey is. Um, there's a couple of times in the past where I you know, make a couple of mistakes and you reflect back on and you compare different seasons within the same environment and okay why did this happen why did that happen um, and so if you don't kind of nail this team building team culture aspect it will haunt you when it when it when the pressure comes to it or a situation occurs someone will make a poor decision or make a bad choice so that's definitely crucial and the key is it's it's a process and if you haven't done this before it's going to take time and, and definitely you can't rush it because if you do then people miss the point uh, or they're not present in a meeting or something and um, it's definitely a challenge but a very powerful and rewarding one if you if you stick with it if you believe in it and if you're in that constant dialogue with your leadership group you find out other things with other players um, and you get the feel of the team and the, and the flow of the team so having that regular dialogue with those, as I mentioned, you know, cultural architects, that's a really good way to help spread the message. Uh, Wade Gilbert's talk of, you know, talking about it, you know, spreading like a virus. You know, so if you get those right people in positions, then they can help police things and control things. And as I say, you, you just, for example, I would talk to you, you guys, and then you'd then go and talk to two, three, four more. Now, I could be the guy standing at the front of the room saying this message, but some people are oh, not coach again. You know, whereas if you do it through your peers and your teammates, it's so much more rewarding and, and powerful, rewarding for you as a coach and powerful as a, as a team and a, and a culture within that team. I love that. The spreading like a virus. I think so often we talk about like culture, we talk about the cancers and, and like, kind of like kind of a negative term, but there's also like this the spreading like a virus in a very positive way of like getting the right people to, to start that. That's fantastic. Um, so much good stuff today. Where can people follow you, connect with you and kind of also read and maybe view some of your content. As you mentioned at the start, I got my, my website, which is nickhillcoaching.com. Link to that then is obviously my Twitter account, which is at capital N capital H underscore capital C coaching underscore. Um, very active on Twitter there and sharing things. And, you know, I write blog pieces and things and share that. Um, link to that, I have a kind of a YouTube channel with different videos of different concepts of coach and player-centered environments. But, yeah, email, uh, nickhillcoaching.com. And as I say, I like this, I Skype guys all around the world. So just get in touch if you want to have a conversation. I'm more than happy to share my experiences, you know, and that's like you mentioned at the beginning. It's my journey, my continuous journey of, in essence, is never ending because 
I'm just trying to be the best I can be for the, the players I coach. All right, Nate, that was a great conversation with Nick today. Uh, one of the things that I found to be really challenging, not just today, but years ago when I was starting off in coaching, when I was in Ireland, was this idea of games-based coaching, right? Of using games to within your practice to teach. And it was very different to my style of coaching at the time. It was very diff- different uh, to my experience as a player. And so, you know, when I first heard about that, I found that to be really challenging. And I know that there's a lot of debate and a lot of conversation, and, and we're going to dive more into this idea of games-based coaching in a future episode. But something that I learned in my experience was I started to shift my focus towards a more games-based approach in practice was it was challenging for me because I had to surrender some control. Like I wasn't controlling every moment, every minute of the practice. And so that was a really big challenge for me. But the reward was players really enjoyed practice a lot more. And for me, I was trying to get players interested in the sport in Ireland uh, of basketball. Or it wasn't a popular sport there. And I needed to get my numbers up quickly, just like Nick coming into America to teach and coach rugby. And that games-based approach was critical in starting to kind of really instill that passion in them, uh, that passion for the sport and that love of the sport and create that enjoyable environment, which is critical towards the player-centered approach, right? It's about what the experience of the athlete is about. When I think that you really illustrate one of the difficult tensions in this player-centered approach, whether it's how you're planning practice or um, how you're deciding what you need to work on as a team, is that you know normally I go into a practice and I think only about what do we need to do to win the next game. And I don't necessarily think about what the players need to do to have a great practice to help us win the next game. And that may be kind of semantics in terms of that approach, but the more that I've started to consider where our players are at coming into practice and what they need to get the most out of that practice, the more likely I am to cater some of the things that we do um, to allow some space for them to have more fun or allow some space for us to play a game where the really the only purpose of the game is to get our energy up or to get our enthusiasm up or to get our competitiveness up, even if in the context of that game we're not necessarily working on something that directly affects a situation we're going to be in, in our, against our upcoming opponent. And that's a very different approach that, that I've had to learn and practice over the last few years um, but one that has definitely led to better practices because I've been more concerned and given more attention to what do our players need to have a great practice or have a good experience in that practice versus just thinking about the tactics and the strategy that we need to improve on to be able to be more competitive in our next game. The second really big challenge about the athlete-centered approach that I know a lot of coaches face is this idea of asking players for feedback or their input on things that we would consider to be really sacred, like what we're gonna do within our practice time, right? Like we really hold on to that practice time. We're intentional about every minute, many of us uh, on the planning. And here Nick has challenged all coaches to essentially ask the players, you know, what do you think we need to work on right now? And I think that's a really big challenge for many of us as coaches. Um, Why don't you talk a little about that? Well, interestingly, I started since we recorded this episode of adding that as question, what do we need to work on with my captains here during my weekly meetings? Um, and it isn't something that I've asked players a lot before other than at the end of the year, you know, we'll ask them, what do you think we need to work on in the off season to get ready for the following year? And I think that, you know, a couple things happen when you ask that question of what do you need to work on? Number one, 
it, it kind of goes back to Nick's whole philosophy of this is their game, like, right? It's their team, right? And so you're going to get naturally more buy-in. You're going to naturally get more um, investment in energy and enthusiasm and an effort from the players if they have some input into what they think they need to do to make their team better, right? And this goes all back to giving ownership to the players and, and giving them the opportunity to self-reflect. Um, and I think that the more that you're including them in that process, the more likely they are to give you the type of energy and engagement that you're looking for on a, on a daily basis, right? But I think what I've found in terms of the challenge to that is, is that when I ask my, my captains that question on a Saturday morning, they think about it for 15 seconds and then they think back to the game we played on Friday night and they say, well, I think we need to work on ball security on our rebounding, okay? Now, to me, I've been watching film for probably 15 hours that week of our games and our opponents, and so I feel like I've got way more knowledge and way more time invested into studying our team than what our captains do by just thinking about it at the spur of the moment, right? And so what I've, I've learned to do with that information is, yes, I think about their perspective and maybe there's some things there that we'll actually work on, um, but it also helps me to, to build a better case for the things that I know we have to do maybe before ball security becomes an issue. So I'll give you an example of that. You know, the other night we gave up 14 offensive rebounds to our opponent. And so a couple of those were where we came down with the ball first, but it got ripped away from us. That's a ball security issue, right? But on the other 12, it was basically a lack of box outs. So my captains remember the ball that was stolen away. But I think for me to build a better case in our next film session to understand here's why we need to work on blocking out as more of an emphasis in our games, watch this. And so we would watch all 14 of those offensive rebounds and realize, oh, 80% of those are because we missed a block out, not necessarily because we weren't tough with the ball once we got it. And so it helps me to communicate better and maybe build a better case for the things that I know we actually have to do. And in that case, connected it to the thing that they said as well. So in a sense, we're trying to meet a little bit in between. We're trying to meet halfway where I'm taking into account what they're saying and what they're seeing and also then trying to, to, to make that connection to what I know based on the time that I've spent studying we really need to do so that we get a better buy-in in the next practice that we have. That's it for today's episode. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out more episodes, subscribe to this podcast, as well as share with other coaches out there in your community. Mm-hmm.